0: Hey, this is Judson Wright from Kootenai, Back Backcountry Guides, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour Podcast. Once you start to become a guide, it has to be about helping other people shred. And if you're doing it for yourself, you're no longer guiding. I literally, leaving, thought every single slope out there was going to hit me with an avalanche. I was looking at everything. Even though it was cold and everything was locked up the next day, in my brain, I was about to get hit by an avalanche. I could not wait to get out of there.
1: You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Shower podcast. I'm your Canadian correspondent, Wes Gregg. The Avalanche Hour is proudly presented by Wiesen Avalanche Control, safety through innovation, with additional support from 10 Barrel Brewing and Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community amongst those who have a curious fascination about avalanches. In this episode, I sit down with Judson Wright of Kootenai Backcountry Guides. Judd and I talk about his path into the ACMG guiding stream and some of the experiences he had along the way. We also discuss why Judd started his own company which offers not only guiding services but avalanche education down in the Kootenai area. Well enough of my yammering on, let's hear what Judson has to say for himself. Hello Judson hey wes how's it going good man how are you doing down there
0: doing great uh we're getting to the point where there's snow happening we're in the middle of a storm right now it snowed 15 centimeters this morning it's supposed to get another 15 to 20 tonight and yeah it's exciting ski
1: time ski time try to get it in before the arctic front moves in over the weekend
0: totally yeah so it's the 22nd of december today and it looks like we might be getting mega cold by the 27th yeah i'm hoping it's not true i'm hoping santa um gets rid of that arctic outbreak i don't don't like them
1: no no i (laughs) I don't like
0: them especially with the reverse winds (laughs) if the reverse winds come in and make all the norse rock hard that's not what you want (laughs) yeah
1: let's just screw up all aspects (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah totally every <laughs> single one of them and then make it mega cold <laughs> yeah and then
1: and then let's turn it all the facets <laughs> yeah
0: totally
1: <laughs> yeah how uh, about not yeah exa- not do that exactly Please. exactly yeah we're yeah, in the same we're boat.
0: just gonna live in the moment here it's snowing now and uh pow on it's all
1: good yeah totally yeah. totally so let's um let's just jump right into it then uh, so yeah. let's start with who you are and what your current role is. So I'm a father to
0: my son, Griffin, and husband to my wife, Kelly, and son of my mother, Amy, and son-in-law of my mother-in-law, Gail, and I'm an owner of Kootenai Backcountry Guides, and I function as that in the lead guide here at Kootenai Backcountry Guides, based out of Nelson, BC.
1: Nice. Nice. And now, how long have you been running Kootenai Backcountry Guides?
0: So, I kind of, like, in 2016, I, I, I had passed my exam in 2015, and I started working on the bare bones of, like, an idea of a business. And just it started, like, skeleton website and stuff around then, and then fully launched in 2017. So I spent that winter kind of doing things. And actually, I think I had put my website up in 2016, just looking for ski tour clients. And I just started getting people, but I had no means or knowledge of like what to do once they got a booking. (laughs) I was just like, whoa, I'm getting actual people booking. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I'd better do this for real next year in 2017. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And it's just been steadily, steadily growing with a, you know, a little bit of a COVID hiccup, you know? Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, like everybody's had in our industry.
1: Um, yeah. Totally. Totally. Okay. So then let's kind of look back at you know, mm-hmm. I always mm-hmm. like to know how people get started in the sport of skiing. Like when the first time it was that your parents either with your blessing, or begrudgingly yeah. put your feet into a <laughs> pair of plastic boots to start sliding down the hill.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that would have been when I was really young. Like, I don't remember learning to ski. I was probably three. My parents were teachers in Ontario, and uh, growing up, we'd go on March breaks and they'd put me in ski lessons. So, some of my earliest memories of my life are skiing um three four that age going to stowe vermont and Jay Peak, and then going to quebec and uh yeah i also got into snowboarding when i was young probably when i was like 10 or 12 which would have been around like 1990 1991 so i kind of i did both nice and then uh yeah and then uh really got into it i just loved it from a really young age i just loved going down mountains with speed and you know, you know, you're really into skiing when you're from Ontario and you continue to do it while you're in Ontario. because <laughs> It's just awful there. It's just awful. But, um, I got into ski racing and that was the thing that kind of got me more and more into it as I was, uh, as I was growing up in my teen years. And that was all I was thinking about then was just racing and that whole culture of Southern Ontario racing, you know? Nice. And uh yeah, I started ducking ropes at Snow Valley Berry going to a gravel pit, you know, like ah. that was my first backcountry, not even knowing it was backcountry. We just knew there was a gravel pit and you could go ski it and you know, it was kind of cool. We'd be like fourteen, fifteen ducking out of bounds, and you know, we'd get caught and have to go in to see the general manager who was like my friend's dad and got into yeah. all this trouble and yeah
1: <laughs> oh man that sounds familiar yeah. the funny thing is is that like if you skied at snow valley and if we're yeah. close to the same age there's a good chance we've actually skied together because yeah
0: so i'm <laughs> 43 oh 100 so percent snow valley Barry, race teams yeah. you know i raced
1: sod and hershey uh, and yeah. mckenzie and nancy green <laughs> and all that <laughs> stuff growing up Yeah. We'll run, we'll I run know. down the gamut of names of people that we probably know. Cause one totally of Totally.
0: My- <laughs> t- take up everybody's time on this podcast. <laughs> on, do you know this random guy? Do you-, you know? <laughs>
1: <laughs> you remember Fritter?
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Totally. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. uh, man. That's awesome. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. Yeah. I, I, I coached at Horseshoe Valley Resort. I was a freestyle. Okay. The freestyle totally. coach there. Um, awesome. Around that time I coached S.O.R., uh, right after they changed from S O D to S O R, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think we definitely, probably, may have run yeah. somewhat in the same yeah. crowd, but we probably yeah. made fun of you, and you probably made fun of us, hot doggers. Yeah. <laughs>
0: i wanted to get into mogul skiing i remember i entered some mogul races and then one of them got cancelled because it got too much snow and that was the end of it and i was like oh we were skiing pow like i didn't even really no power is much of a thing at that oh, point. I was exactly. like, "Man, my mogul race got canceled by thirty
1: <laughs> centimeters.
0: What's going
1: on?" <laughs> totally, totally. Oh man, that yeah. that is a trip down memory lane. I'm sure for both of us. Yeah, yeah, totally. So then, yeah. after with with racing and stuff like that, I found like mm-hmm. I know for myself, anyways, that's being in that competitive world, and and um, and then as you grow older and start to move out of. The realization that you're not going to the big show um, yeah <laughs> that it, was really soon for me <laughs> is <Yeah. laughs> is is that kind of when you you know started to think about uh pursuing skiing as a career either as an instructor uh, no or...
0: yeah no no not at all like so i was my buddy and i read a article in powder magazine when we were like 12 or 13 about these guys who moved to rosalind and uh dirt bagged it and we're like crashing on friends couches and breaking into hotel um stairwells and sleeping in them and ski bombing in red and we were just like this he was on my race team we were like that sounds like the raddest thing anyone's ever done and so we agreed we would move to uh rosalind when we graduated high school so and be ski bum. so that was our goal that was my goal it wasn't a career it was like i wanted to be a ski bum. <laughs> and my parents my parents were like you need a career and i was like is ski bumming a career because that's what i want to do so <laughs> we moved out west um right after high school that would have been 1998 to rosland and uh i was staying in the hostel And believe it or not, we had no plan. Our plan was we had like tents and sleeping bags and we were literally just gonna move to Roslyn and just figure it out. We're gonna camp, we're gonna do whatever (laughs) we could to like make it work. I didn't even know you could like rent houses there. And so we got into the hostel, actually the bus driver drove us up to the hostel from Trail. So we're in Trail and the bus driver's like, where are you going? We're like, Roslyn, he's like, how are you getting there? We're like, I don't know. And so the bus driver (laughs) drove us up probably like sucker Ontario kids no clue what's going on (laughs) right and then he's like you need to go to the hostel so we went to the hostel and then immediately met a guy who was like I got a house in two rooms and it's like five hundred dollars a month and we were like oh my god five hundred dollars a month how many people (laughs) it's like oh we could fit like four of us in there and so I was ski bumming. I was just like this is the greatest thing ever I got a house now and then um I was in the hostel, and this uh, French ski guide named Claude Claude Duchesne uh, came in, and he was like, ski bums, ski bums, who, who needs furniture? And I was like, me, I need furniture. He's like, I got it at my house. So he took me up to his house, and um, I didn't know he was a ski guide, and he starts giving me all this furniture, and we're like hoofing it down to my house and back. And and uh, he's like, "Why don't you come on in for a scotch?" And of course, I'm like, "19 years old. I'm like, what? I don't even know what a scotch is." So, like, <laughs> yeah, sure, dude. Like, whatever that is, I'll have some. And so, he b- invites me in for a scotch, and he's like telling me what he does for a job. And I was just like, "Oh my god, I haven't even really backcountry skied or really knowing much about powder." But after talking to him, I was like, "Okay, that's my job." That's what I want to do. I need to be a ski guide now. And um, yeah, he actually took me out ski touring the next year when I got a pair of like rickety old telly skis and (laughs) took me to Kootenay Pass. And then that was it. Like I was just hooked, you know? Nice. Yeah, I did that season in 98 in Roslyn. It was like the biggest winter ever in Roslyn. We finished close to a four meter base and hasn't snowed like that since in Roslyn. And I was just like back to back 15, 20 centimeters all the time. And we were just like losing our minds and that was it. I was done. Wow. I was not going to university, you know, <laughs> uh, and you know, I had signed up for university. My parents were teachers, right? And they're like, you got to do something, right? Like, what are you going to do? And I was like, well, I'm going to be a ski guide. And they're like, well, what is that? <laughs> and I told them, and then they actually put me in the uh, Yemniska program, the three month semester the next year. So the year after I went to the Yamnuska mountain semester, I did mountaineering, ski touring, all that stuff. And then that just kind of got me my taste of like what those things were and gave me a bit of a foundation. Nice. Yeah. Which I was so, so fortunate. My parents did that for me. No doubt. You know, I could tell it was tough, you know, on them for me to be saying, hey, I don't want to go to university. I want to ski but i think they probably knew that about me you know already yeah. that skiing was going to be what i had to do and snowboarding by the way both of them yeah yeah, yeah. i use them interchangeably um but yeah oh yeah so it's just so so lucky yeah and then i came out of that program and then i just started ski touring and just was trying to build up all my my uh trips to to become a guide you know they just basically back then you just go on the acmg website and see like okay you have to bank these i just started logging trips and learning and you know did my ca level one in 2001 and then did the csga level one in 2003 right yeah
1: So were you working at all, like in the industry during that time? No, no, I was
0: just ski touring. I got my start in the industry um, at Ice Creek Lodge in 2004. I got invited up there to do practicums. I met um, Russell Halbert and Sean West at a, uh, at a, uh, um, that would have been a first aid course. And I, finished and they said they had a they had a lot they were building this lodge up this valley and i kind of knew where the valley was and i couldn't believe there was a lodge up there and i couldn't even believe i would met these guys and i i you know i was just trying to you know act cool around them as we were doing <laughs> the first aid and be like a solid guy and i was like leaving because you know i'd been like applying and trying to get in and back then there just wasn't that much work and you couldn't get your foot in the door anywhere and I, I was just writing everyone and calling and then, you know, after the course I was in the parking lot walking to the car and then uh Russ came out of uh out of the first aid place and he was like, Hey Judd, come on back. I was like, Hey and he invited me to their staff training. And i was just like i couldn't believe it i was just like acting so okay cool i'll be there and just get into the my truck and i was just like yes yes i can't believe it i'm gonna go up to a lodge like this is unbelievable and yeah and then i got all kinds of practicum work uh from that winter on i was up at ice uh pretty much you know three four weeks a year um practicuming, tail guiding doing whatever i could and then got my foot in the door at Retallic in 2007, and then that just was, I was pretty much working full time from then on, from 2007 on, yeah. But you know, those years were, those years of just touring before work were amazing. It was just doing trips with my friends, just random stuff, just trying to learn on the fly, Yeah, you know? (laughs) Yeah. yeah, and everything was so different back then. You know, you didn't have all the stuff. You didn't have as much with the avalanche forecast. You didn't have the tools. You had to. You know go find a map and be like okay what's up that valley how are we going to get up there you know yeah. what's behind the ridge And <laughs> you know now you just go on google earth and you're like oh okay that's what's over there uh totally you spoiled know? totally yeah, spoiled. Yeah, yeah yeah and just flailing like just flailing so much you know on days just not knowing where to go not knowing anything and then going back to the same place because you knew it yeah. Uh, you just hope that someone would show you too. You you had to like get shown in an area in some ways. You'd meet someone else ski touring and they'd like show you around the corner. And,
1: yeah. 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 Totally. Like kind of a, you know, you find a mentor in town or something like that. Is that kind of how? how it would go yeah
0: for for me yeah occasionally you just meet another ski tour i didn't really have like ski during those years before i got into the industry i didn't have mentors in the program Uh, you would just meet random ski tour people who would just take you out with them and you'd forge friendships that way and then when i met uh russ and sean those guys became my uh, first initial mentors was doing trips with those two right up at the lodge and of course at that staff training i met all the guides up there at the same time right it was all these guides and you know i'm in way over my head way <laughs> over my head i <laughs> no idea what i'm doing i'm just like i'm there
1: <laughs> yeah yeah
0: not knowing how just all starry-eyed and yeah <laughs> yeah yeah totally yes.
1: Now, so fortunate yeah yeah so you're saying like back then it it was tougher to get your foot in the door and i know like um you know my, I think my, my, so myself and and we get this question a lot from other listeners and stuff like that mm-hmm. from aspiring guides and aspiring mm-hmm. professionals you you do you feel that it's perhaps a little bit easier now i know some lodge owners and stuff like that are yeah. saying yeah practicums aren't really a thing like you know, you, you got to get some of there them and-
0: are. I, I try to take on as many as I can myself and get right. people out there to get them experience. There's way more, the industry is way bigger than in 2003 to 2007. Yeah. You know, like the cat and the heli ski operations are all full. There's lodges that have sprung up everywhere, there's so much more work. That doesn't mean necessarily it's easier to get in the door because there's so many people out there trying to get in, yeah. wanting this career and this path. It's, it's a big thing. And it's, I know a lot of people who have had a hard time. I think this year it has been a lot, of, a lot of the practicums I've been, I was having with me last year have gotten jobs this year. which is just amazing to see. And I'm so happy. It's like one of the best things I've had this year in running the company is seeing some of those guys um, get work and be like, okay, they're in the industry. They have jobs now. And it just takes that one foot in the door somehow to have somebody then pass you on to that next person. Totally. And that's the way it is. And then when you get in there, you just got to give her. You got to be humble and you got to work and you can't blow it. You can't and blowing it is just like getting drunk, being a fool. Like be in there and just show that you're a pro. You want to be a pro and uh, do all the little dirty grunt work. Do anything you can to 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 make an impression, a positive one. And when that happens, you're in.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. I I worked in the music industry for years, and and it's kind of a little bit of the same thing. You know, you got to be a good hang, and you got to be able to to control yourself and, and always be a professional at all times. Yeah. yeah. No, that, that's really good. So then you, you had mentioned before, we, we did talk mm-hmm. already a little bit about yeah. uh, Kootenai uh, backcountry guides. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, when you started coming, um, <clears throat> like going through the stages of your ACMG training,
0: was mm-hmm.
1: was that still the time that you were working at Retallic and, and working at Icefall or oh, yeah,
0: at Ice Creek. Or um, sorry, Ice Creek. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. So I started doing my exams in 2011 to 2015. That's when I did my ACMG exams. I passed the apprentice in 2011, and then I passed the full in 2015. Um, yeah, and so, yeah, I was working all over the place then. I, I did not, um, I did not stick to one place. I was the type of guy who went around as much as I could. I worked at a lot of different operations during that time span. That was one of the better pieces of advice too I got from John Buffer he was working with me. He's like, you know, don't limit yourself to, these, to one place. So like, make sure you get out there, make sure you go to as many different places, see stuff through other guides views, get as many different experiences as you can during this and i was super lucky to have to have been able to do that i did work primarily at Ritalik f- through most of that um yeah
1: nice now did but, you prefer yeah. the the touring side of of the career at first or uh, to the mechanized side?
0: yeah well you know when you're doing practicums you don't have your apprentice it's hard to get any ski touring work ski touring is my passion i am not i i like cats i i i enjoy mechanized work ski touring is the that is what i'm into i love the ski touring of course like helicopter skiing is amazing (laughs) it's so addictive (laughs) but there's something so satisfying about ski touring and doing lodge weeks and guiding lodge weeks and that's been a big goal of mine is to get back into doing um lodge weeks
1: Nice. Mm -hmm. Nice. So then when you, when you finished up your exams with the ACMG, Mm -hmm. what was the major driver behind starting, uh, the company Kootenai Backcountry?
0: Uh, yeah. So just wanting to help people get the skills to go amazing places. Um, the main purpose of Kootenai Backcountry Guides is to enable people to confidently access the backcountry. And I wanted to give people courses and trips and things that I, and opportunities that maybe I didn't have because those things weren't around when I, when I was um, starting. Um, I didn't know I was going to get into uh, avalanche education end of things. That just kind of happened to happen. Um, I was working for um, Summit Mountain Guides here. David Lucy is a great company, great mentor of mine, and I was teaching for him and guiding around here locally. And um, I just started wanting to um, put my own mark on the courses. I was starting to teach quite a bit, and I was starting to be like, hey, I want to start to teach it like this. And then I was getting requests from people, friends of mine, being like, hey, can you put a course on And so then I started to work on my own uh, curriculum and my own material and then taking the Avalanche Canada stuff and uh, working it in my own way. Um, which for me started out in terms of like storytelling, like I would just see that like I had been in all these places and everywhere I took people on these courses, I had a different story of mishaps and adventures <laughs> that had happened. But that was what locked students in when you can tell them, hey, you craft the lesson around an incident or a story particular that either you are a part of or your friend was a part of or whatever in that piece of terrain and people really have a take home. And I was seeing people's eyes sort of light up and then i was like hey you know if i start doing things this way i can i can offer a bit more and then also that all the courses here were just getting full so i was like there's an opportunity here to start to branch out and do my own ast courses and um, incorporate them that way and then people have more opportunity to take courses yeah Um, the other thing was the culture shift wasn't quite there yet in you know the 2014 15 16 we weren't as safety oriented and AST course um the the backcountry culture was just starting to get that safety element of it and i was seeing elements of the way people were treating the backcountry that i i wanted to start to change and a lot of it had to do with the human element so at that time too was just the human factors were becoming more and more of a thing and i wanted to do more teaching around that and start crafting my courses to emphasize those human factors and human lessons in them yeah yeah. And since then, I've just seen this whole AST thing. The whole backcountry education thing is just completely uh, blowing up all over the place as everyone's seen, which is great. Totally. The safety culture completely changed in backcountry skiing um, from even five,
1: six years ago. Totally. Yeah, I agree. A hundred percent. Yeah, I'm, I'm fortunate enough. I actually just taught my first AST one course last weekend and uh, nice. It, How was it? Oh, it was amazing. And and you know what? You're, That's awesome. You're exactly yeah. right about um, one of the things I got from feedback was people wanted more of those stories. You know, yeah. Because I kept telling them, you know, learn from my mistakes. You might yeah, still not make them. Your,
0: yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. Totally, totally. But yeah. this is what
1: can happen, yeah. and and if you think it won't happen, this yeah. is what happens.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. You know, like, uh, you know, there's uh, this guy, Carl the Narl at Ritalik used to say, I get high on hecka- secondhand stoke. <laughs> and it's like, you know, people are like, oh, you know, those AST ones, you don't get to, you know, ski much and, you know, it must be tough. But he's like, for me, it's like, when I can see somebody get tuned in and just start getting it. And be like, I see that myself of the 20, 15 years ago, that light shining and being like, man, I just love this sport. And if I just get one student on an AST one or two that has that happen, it just completely makes my day as much as skiing an amazing powder run, because I'm just, I feel like there's a gift there to that person that like my life was changed by ski touring. I don't know where I would be if I hadn't discovered this amazing, amazing sport. I I wouldn't have any, like anything I have right now is, is all due to, is all due to that sport in a way. It's like, yeah, it's, it's quite amazing. And so I, I just love it.
1: Yeah. So, so with your, with the company then, so you guys are doing AST Mm ones, you're doing AST twos and then also guided trips. Yeah guided
0: trips we have lodge trips we do day trips around here um i do courses base camps traverses now it's just um trying to offer more and more because we have more and more guests and more and more people come back and then they're like okay what's the next thing what do i do next and now it's like yeah doing lodge trips and traverses and base camps yeah which is amazing too because i get to see those guests who you know started out with me in 2017 you know i have guys going on uh a lodge trip with me next year who their first you know times touring were with me as a guide in 2017 and we slowly like progress the trips up to now where people they're ready to go on a lodge trip and i'm i'm stoked for for that to the lodge is just full of people who i've guided in the past who were just kind of like sign me up now and and that's where we're at it's fantastic totally
1: totally no that's Mm. That's awesome. Now, over the summer, we yeah we touched base because a previous guest recommended you, and then you'd mm-hmm. also uh, reached out to Caleb. Um, but yeah. you have another project that you're currently working on. Can you yeah. give the listeners a, a little lot back? going on usually. But yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, background on. Yeah. So I help work the run the state of the snowpack Nelson, and that's happening actually tomorrow night, December 23rd. We're running our first one. It's been a work in progress due to COVID, of course. Mm -hmm. Right. But when we first launched that, I I was so it kind of goes back a ways. I just started like randomly, it was kind of before everyone was doing. These like snowpack update videos that you see kind of everywhere popping up. Utah Avalanche <laughs> Center does like them all the time. They do an amazing job of it. Yeah, I just started randomly like filming myself doing things on my cell phone and I noticed that people were just like so into seeing that like just being like okay here we are with a snowpack. This is what I'm seeing and we were getting huge levels of engagement on social media with it and so I was just doing it more and more and I think I made like a transceiver interference video too that just got um, pretty got out there on Facebook with just people sharing it was absolutely crazy and I was like wow social media can be used for some pretty amazing things Mm -hmm. we can share information and people can tune into it on a level that's never been sort of seen before in terms of our industry because it can be immediate and people can see it And then um, Morgan Dinsdale um, moved here um, and she connected, a mutual friend introduced us and she connected and said, hey, I was thinking about doing this state of the snowpack thing that I was seeing done down um, down in Wyoming in Jackson. I would love to bring it here. So then we started working on doing it here. And I think the first winter, it would have been 2019, we ran like two or three of them at a local pub and with little to no effort at all, it was just like people were going, were just packing themselves into the bar for this. And all we were doing was talking about what's in the snowpack. What are the layers in the snowpack? What am I seeing out there? And then we would incorporate uh, some type of learning or other story, maybe a human factors thing, any type of lesson into it. And the, the engagement with the community was amazing. And so the whole idea was to get avalanche professionals out face to face with the public talking about what we do and what we're seeing in the mountains to be able to provide them with extra information and then also be able to connect them and see that we're we're out there doing good things and we're contributing, which is what we are, but giving a little bit more to the communities as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's been incredibly popular. And then, of course, COVID happened last year <laughs> and it was like no more people. So then we started doing them online, which made its own challenges because then it's like, as you know, like just doing something like this you know, can be difficult. You always have these tech things. So then trying to stream it and live stream it and do all that. And we had our our growing pains through that. And then we were like, hey, we're gonna get back into the bars and be able to do it again this year. And then like literally two days ago, they were just like more restrictions. So we're back to like, it's gonna be limited capacity tomorrow. We're gonna do our best to get it out there to people. In any format we can, it's been amazing. All the people have jumped in to help because they see the value of it. So we've had uh, all kinds of local volunteers, photographers, filmers film it for us and um, help us help us run it and get it in as many hands as possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, what Morgan's done, she's she's also got the ski resort. So Jason Wishlow, uh, the lead patroller at Whitewater, he's a big part of it and he's contributing. It and we're trying to put out videos. Right regularly just random ones. Hey, this is what we're seeing. And so I try and do it kind of every second or third day. I'm out there and just be like, Hey, this is what I'm seeing. This is where I am. And the whole goal is to make it supplement the bulletin. Yeah. right so we have this bulletin and i don't want to ever take away from the bulletin like i contribute to the bulletin because every time in the mountain i I put it into the inflex yeah right and so it goes into the inflex i try to make mountain condition report or mountain information network reports i don't always do that but i always put it in the inflex but what we don't want this and anybody who gets involved with this is to have it to pull the information away from avalanche canada and get it on social media that's not the goal the goal is to use that social to draw people more into the bulletin and to maybe give more specific reference points as well for what's going on because the bulletin's amazing but it's also regional yeah. Right. It's big. Like the Kootenay boundary, we're going all the way from Kootenay Pass up to Whitewater all the way up to Big White. Like that's a massive bulletin. Yeah. And yeah. so to be able to provide these point observations and do them in video form and draw people in and then get them more engaged with the content and info that Avalanche Canada is putting out there. That's the goal.
1: Yeah. And I think that it almost falls into that whole education side too with uh, people's different the, the way people yeah. learn differently, right? Some people are more visual learners. So if you can tie in an image of a of a demonstration of a specific avalanche mm-hmm. problem that coincides yeah. with what the bulletin's saying, it could help drive yeah. it, drive it home. And then maybe the newer users might start to actually understand what that what that bulletin yeah. means. So totally it, is that kind of um, is that kind of the impact that you guys are hoping to have on the recreational side is this cuz this is mainly geared yeah. towards the recreational user and maybe totally. the up and coming professional user
0: yeah exactly so we want to hope to spread the love of the snowpack um help, help people understand get a better understanding what's going on over there over time Um, how it forms over the course of the winter we want to spread the vibe that sharing info is the way that makes us all safer Mm -hmm. get people into it and and draw them into the educational components of it and give them information that's going to help them like plan their days and keep them safer Um, and also we want to to have guides be accessible and have that information be easily accessible and guides be accessible you know part of the idea is as well as to just reduce a bit of the the idea the elitism of guides to um putting us out in front of people and contributing and not being the stuck up people that we're not our industry isn't like that but that perception can be out there with the public i've personally haven't seen much of that, but you do hear of it, mm-hmm. and so the idea is to counter that and and bring it home in a non elitist way of like sharing, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's an amazing amazing way to kind of bring that to the people and combine it with what Avalanche Canada is doing, and then on top of all that, you know, we talk a lot about education, and and mm-hmm. uh, it's a big thing. You know, and Avalanche Canada is putting a big push seen a huge uptick in in uh, snowmobilers taking courses um, mm-hmm. so what do you see for the future of avalanche education? Do you feel that the programs that we have now I are, are are doing what we need to do Should there be another, course after the ast2 aside from companion rescue what what are your feelings yeah on that? that's
0: another that's a whole other topic right that's a huge <laughs> thing and uh yeah i've definitely was working on trying to trying to create content for i i do think that what people want is they want more they want more courses mm-hmm. people are leaving the ast2 they're asking for more what that is i don't know at this point yeah um you know uh i don't know what that is i know avalanche canada's uh been thinking a bunch about what are the next steps for us we just did a uh, backcountry rescue course which Mm -hmm. was really good we incorporated it was two days we did first aid Combined with backcountry rescue skills, the course sold out. People are into it. They're hungry for more. Yeah. They want track setting courses. They want to know what the next process is to be able to move beyond the evaluator training. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that is because it's that's it's really hard every time i sit down to try to make a course it literally takes over a month to be like okay i'm gonna just work on this one eight hour course mm-hmm. and so to think oh i'm gonna maybe try to work on something beyond this the ast curriculum makes it extremely it's a lot it's a lot and i know that avalanche canada is humming and about that and thinking about what they can do and a lot of the 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 um industry professionals are thinking about it as well, and I'm pretty sure that there's going to be stuff coming out in the next few years of like, what can they do next, Yeah, you know? Um, The companion rescue skills has been a tough sell. People don't take it for some reason. It's really hard. I pushed that course so hard and people just would not sign up for it. It's so bizarre because then often what I'm seeing is people coming into the AST2 and I'm like, okay, I'm ready to teach them, you know, multiple burials and stuff. And I find find like I'm going right back to square one. I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm starting out at the beginning again here with AST two. I'm yeah. back to teaching the simple procedures with uh, just doing single transceiver. You can't you can't take it far at all, and it's just the way it is because the reality is, I don't think many people really do practice with their transceivers.
1: And it, it's funny, you know. Um... Well, I was watching the uh, the webinar last week, and uh, the the tech that was on there works with with James Minifee from Up yeah. the Yukon there. And, and James has said yeah. this to myself as well, um, where companion rescue is one of those things that you can practice all the time. Doesn't matter how yeah. much snow there is, it, you mm-hmm. can practice it all the time. And that's something that that really resonated for me. And that's something that I'm mm-hmm. going to bring to each one of the courses that I'm going to be teaching throughout the season. Where, you know, telling these mm-hmm. people like practice this like the the better you are at this the (laughs) the safer you're going to feel and the safer your team's going to feel and uh because that's exactly it people are like well what's after ast2 and it's like well companion rescue and and uh but well aren't we doing that right now and it's like well yeah but there's other scenarios and there's a lot to companion rescue if things
0: yeah aren't going
1: by the book (laughs)
0: <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's never by the book. The book is, yeah book gets tossed sometimes yeah there's no simple one really out there from what I've read there's always some type of challenges and yeah exactly we implore like Avalanche Canada does an amazing job of like pushing all this stuff like where they've come in the last few years with their marketing and all their socials and the information they're getting out there it's amazing and then to hear the low numbers on the companion rescue skills I, I don't know what to say yeah. about it uh more people are taking AST2s which is awesome we're mm-hmm. having huge uptake in our AST2 programs it's great yeah and um yeah you know given that like we've now moved all of our our uh, classroom stuff online so people do our online before and that gives everyone an additional field day so my oh. old model was like one classroom day of lectures one field day for AST1 now it's two full field days so we're essentially getting to teach a full companion rescue course out there on one of the days nice. and then my f- first day of my AST2 is pretty much all Have all companion rescue skills, not a hundred percent, but pretty close. And I'm finding you need it and people want it in the ASD too. They're, they're asking for it. So it's great.
1: Yeah. And it's funny, my wife and I were actually talking about that on the way back from, from Vernon on the weekend about how Mm -hmm. it would be nice to do evening sessions, like two evening sessions or, or one evening session and then have two field days because yeah, it's, it's tough in an AST 1 I've, even though it's only the first oh. one I've I've done but I shadowed I've shadowed yeah. a couple and it's tough to get all of that stuff in in a day.
0: So hard. And it's uh, so hard.
1: But people's yeah. time is tough too. Like I'm looking at at myself even from as a teacher yeah. and it's like, you know, I'm an aspiring guide and and aspiring yeah. uh active CAA applicant. Yeah. And it's like, well, yeah. I've got to get these other experiences so I can't just be teaching all the time. <laughs> But, but that that being said, I know you guys are probably super busy down there and, and, you know, just perusing through your website, it seems like you have quite a team of, of guides and aspiring guides. So, um, Mm -hmm. what do you like to see from, from upcoming professionals that come to you looking for a start in the industry or, or a veteran that's looking to get into the educational side or, or work for as a guide for you?
0: um so yeah i mean so for up-and-comers so all of us is just all about being humble it's all about being humble and being professional taking everything um, seriously Um, when you're out there you also have to have um you also have to have connection with your guests and your students you have to um, have You have to be at their level and meet them where they are at no matter what. And it's no longer about you. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. Like skiing and ski touring and powder... It can be at the beginning of a guide's career, they're getting into it because they love powder skiing and they love the mountains and travel. And the more experience you get and the more you get into guiding, the more it's about giving that to the other people. And if you're in there thinking about the pow on your runs, you're probably not doing your job anymore. So that's when it becomes a little bit about the secondhand stoke and there's a big transference that happened to me with that where when i first got into tail guiding i just wanted to rip and shred and have fun and you know i was serious and took all those you know responsibilities super seriously but at the same time you know we all like to just shred and i'm not saying you can't love it that's that's not that's not <laughs> what i'm saying but that's no longer the purpose of what you're doing yeah right and so a lot of people get into this the purpose is to shred and then once you start to become a guide it, it it has to be about helping other people shred. And if you're doing it for yourself, you're no longer guiding.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good point. I like that.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. And you know,
1: uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's,
0: that's my biggest thing I'm looking for in people is to, to want to just give that experience out.
1: This is obviously one of the questions that we, Mm -hmm. we talked about a lot mm-hmm. on this podcast, and I know that you have a pretty unique story. I, you, you know, if you, listeners, mm-hmm. if you haven't heard uh, Judson's Dark Starts podcast, he's also on there, where he talks a little bit about this experience. But let's mm-hmm. let's get the story from you. So, you want to mm-hmm. share your story of during your training path in the ACMG of uh, something that humbled you and and kind of changed yeah, the way sure. you approach the mountains.
0: Yeah. So. I, I was in a pretty serious avalanche accident on the Bugster Rogers traverse and actually kind of, I just watched the, uh, film there with Leah Evans and, uh, just brought me right back to that place of that trip. And, uh, you know, that, that trip was amazing, um, powerful, so humbling for me. Um, and so, yeah, I did it with, uh, five friends in 2005 as part of my training, um, just, you know again like you're just kind of handed okay go do this stuff do you really have the skills did i really have the skills at that point probably not i was probably in a little bit over my head at that point and um luckily one of the group members um aj uh linnell he he was super strong and ended up kind of de facto uh leading us uh through charge out there but that's just one of those traverses it just seems like it just never stops handing you challenges steep hard everything about it big and um yeah so we got into a pretty big storm um up on the grand and had to pull the pin we were stuck there for like three days with about uh 50 to 70 centimeters of storm snow um the whole trip actually we were in we were in it is storming uh, quite regularly on the trip for us we didn't wait for the good weather which is what we should have because good weather came in behind but the second the storm broke it cleared and we saw avalanche activity all around us and we were like oh my god what are we what are we gonna do you know like uh we had to move through avalanche train and there was size two and a halfs that had broken out in the storm um right on similar slopes that we had to cross and it was like okay we're not we're not going so we had to go back down so we went all the way back down to the beaver valley there and it's either you um bushwhack out i think it's like 43 kilometers or something yeah. of bushwhacking out yeah between the purcells and the uh between the Purcells and the Selkirks, there. And so we ended up uh, just uh, sitting at the bottom when we got down there because the sun broke. And we had a decent route to um, travel back up and in and get up onto the DeVille and Neve there. And, uh, but what happened was, is it went to like 15 degrees Celsius. (laughs) So we had just had about 50 centimeters of snow, 70 ish. And then the next afternoon it's 15 degrees and we're in Valley bottom. We're just hearing the thunder of avalanches off in the distance. And we're like, do we go out or not? And, uh, two of us wanted to potentially do the bushwhack two people wanted to carry on and one was in the middle and so there's the human factor of us we ended up literally just sitting in a circle and uh it was quiet for a long time and then finally this butterfly landed on um aj's arm and that kind of broke the ice, <laughs> and we we're like, "Hey, we got to uh, come up with a plan here." And the plan was is that um, we could do it, but we had to do it at very early morning. So that was the goal. We were going to wait for it to get um, dark. We were going to head on up the Grand and get on the Grand Valley and get on up onto the DeVille, But we would do it at night, and then we would camp right below, and then wake up mega early and go. Uh, the next day, because you have to do the rappel. So, on the Bugs to Rogers Traverse, there's the rappel off the Deville into the Glacier Circle there. And um, it is a uh, serious move. Um, back then, it was different because now they've uh, changed the bolting and the way that you do the rappel is completely different. But back then, all we had was Chick, Chick Scott's guidebook. So, anyway, the next morning we wake up. And for whatever reason, we were slow getting out of camp. I don't, my memory is a bit fuzzy. I just know we left way later than what we thought we were going to. Breakfast took way longer. Um, we um, ended up on an icy boot pack that took way longer. And we were up on the Deville, and the whole time I just had this nagging feeling going on in me. I was like, this does not feel right. And I know that other members of the group did as well, and we weren't really voicing it. We were just moving along, along the top, and we got to the rappel, and I'm pretty sure it was noon, oh. and the sun was out. And off of Mount Topham there, there's some pretty big slopes overhanging the rappel. So we start going down the rappel. I, I think there was a conversation up at the top as well, but we were low on food, we're low on fuel, we're like, okay, let's just do it. We got two rope lengths to go down. And so we wrap down and there's a, there's a wrap station. And so we get to the first wrap station and the, the instructions were to veer to the, um, cl- to the uh, repellers right. So we had to go right, but what happened was is we couldn't figure out where or how to go right. So what happened was, is um, my buddy Jay, he, he was the one leading it on the way down. He ended up basically hung up on the end of the rope with no wrap station. He could not find another wrap station. Meanwhile, the slopes above us are heating up. Yeah. So the slopes are all heating up. The sun is on and it's me, AJ and Jeff all on this one um, bolt on the side on the 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 second wrap station and Jay's on the end of the rope and we got no communications with him. He's just on the end of the rope hanging in the middle of the air. So he actually climbed back up the rope, yelled down up, down to Christian, who was there as well, and he he came down to help Jay try to figure it out, which was weird if you think about it, because now there's two people on the end of the rope. <laughs> but it ended up being very fortuitous that Christian was there, because they were trying to find something, anything to build an anchor, and they ended up finding a patch of ice. And Jay had an ice screw, so he built an abalakov. And that was our out, but we were like, oh my God, we're all going to have to hang off the same abalakov. And for those of you who maybe are listening, don't know, an abolikoff basically take an ice screw and you thread and you put it in and make a V. So you screw it in and screw it in and then you hang the rope through. And so he made, they found a piece of ice that was not a big piece of ice. So this is how <laughs> sketchy it was. Meanwhile, I'm up on the upper station. The sun is out and rocks and chunks of snow are starting to come down on us. This is how hot it is. And I'm like, oh, my God, we're literally going to get hit by an avalanche on the this rappel. And uh, Jay or Jeff, my buddy, um, he's making jokes. He was keeping me sane by making jokes, singing songs, being a lighthearted guy when <laughs> really we were like, yeah, the fact that he did that really, pull, really pulled me through. Um, but so Christian and Jay are on the end and they make the Ebolikov, but they can't get the rope through because you usually need something to pull the rope through. You need something to hook it. They didn't have a hook what they did was christian had a hood on his jacket that had a wire so this is back in the day and hoods had wires on them so they cut open christian's jacket and pulled the wire out of his hood and used it to pull through the abolic and then hook the rope onto the wire and then pulled the rope through and then we all wrapped down and we all wrapped off the end of the off of that abolic and we got to the bottom and we were like okay we're off we're all high fiving we're like whatever i'm like i got to get the hell out of here and so one thing that i then this you know goes to show my inexperience is back then i was really really always concerned about seracs and so to the skiers left it was a serac okay skiers fall line was a run down and out to the right was the rappel and I didn't want to go left because I didn't want to go under the Serac. Meanwhile, the avalanche slope was on sort of the skiers right above <laughs> us, right? right? The other thing that was going on on the right was I was uber curious about what was um, where the rappel went. We were like, where was the actual rappel? How did we miss it? Why why did we end up on the end of the rope? So I was quickly trying to get out of there. I put all my stuff on and I traversed out and I was looking up at the rappel. And when I was looking up, the whole slope above released so uh solar triggered slab it wasn't just a a wet it was actually a slab avalanche released and i heard what i call the sound of a thousand trains like rolling off of that uh that rappel and it launched right off uh the rappel itself so it went over the cliffs and i and i'm not exactly sure i figure it's about a 100 meter cliff at least the thing went it was a size two and a half to size three and i just started pointing it downhill but of course i got a big pack on it, the slope was crusty and hard and i was trying to outrun it i was trying to outrun the sound of a thousand trains and i fell and i fell down and as i was pushing myself up i looked over my shoulder and the powder cloud was coming at me And all I could think was like, this is it, it's over. This is the end, this is how it ends. And uh, what happened was, was really crazy. The powder cloud in the air blast was so strong that I actually felt myself get moved forward. So I could feel myself getting pushed by the air to begin with. The other thing that is perhaps the most bizarre to me was I remember in my brain, something said, be like water. Something was like, be like water, be it, be the water. And I was in what I would just call complete non-control of any of my bodily functions for the next I don't know, 10 seconds. I was on the bottom. I was on the top. I was getting ragdolled. I had no idea which way was up, which way was down. It was loud. Um, uh, and I, but what I did was I relaxed through it the bizarre thing, I just let myself go limp. I'm convinced that helped that I didn't go super rigid. And by no means am I ever, you know, recommending this as a technique. (laughs) I just, I'm not saying that I just have, I I literally had zero control over anything. So Mm -hmm. I just relaxed through it. And um, what happened was, is it started to push me to the top. And I think that having a huge traverse pack helped. I think that that was like an airbag. And at the end, I was actually sitting on top of the slide because it was harder snow because it had been baked in the sun. And I was watching the front of the avalanche. It was like a wave. And I don't know if anybody's ever been in the ocean. You see the wave like recirculating, like it crashes and then you get the undertow and then it spills up again. That was what was going on on the front of the avalanche. And I was literally just behind it and sitting on it and but then of course as it slows down i'm starting to get buried and then i started pushing myself up and the other thing that saved my life was there was no terrain trap there so if you look on google earth on that slope there's no terrain trap it's just a slow long slope and that allowed the debris to get spread out on the slope right when i when i when everything stopped i looked in front of me and my sunglasses were on the snow right in front of my face and I was buried up to my chest. How did my sunglasses stay on? I literally have no idea why did they come off and like fall on the snow in front of me? No idea. But I looked behind me and I saw one of my friend's jackets was flying through the air. That was the, that was the extent of the air blast. Like literally it was just coming down, waving like a, a, a paper bag type thing and landed on the surface of the snow. And I thought everybody was buried. So I thought the whole group was buried, gear was everywhere. I started yelling, hey guys, like freaking out and um, getting my transceiver out, getting trying to get myself up out of the snow, um, trying to open up my pack. And then one of my friends, uh, Christian, he came around the corner and was like, we're all okay. And um, they were off to the side because I had traversed to the right. They were able to run out to the side and just some of their gear got hit. Right. That was it. Yeah, and I think we only lost a pole and some other little bits of gear, but it it really wasn't too too much. We were able to find my skis. Um my skis were buried but just with the the tip and tail were showing out and we got all the stuff and I got out of there. When I got out of there I just started to hurt and then uh just just my my ribs were the only thing that uh were hurt um other mm-hmm. than obviously like my my mental um yeah my the emotional um that it was just starting to uh take on then but yeah yeah we got out of there and literally probably five minutes off of being off of the debris another slide let go and totally ripped over because the sun was just baking on that um on that south and west slope off that off that peak and yeah it's just, um, yeah, I was that close to, I, I don't know how I lived and yeah, the, the other amazing part of that story is that that night, Doug Sproul, who was doing the speed traverse. So, you know, how guys do that speed traverse in, yeah. in reverse. Doug was doing the trip in reverse over the full moon during the heat. So, and he was doing it at night and I had no idea about any of this. So I am recovering asleep in the glacier circle cabin and i hear like a knock and i just hear hey judley judley and i'm just like what like what is going on i'm having some type of weird dream and it was doug showing up and starts telling me about what they're doing they're doing the speed traverse thing and i forget what they I think they did it in like 80 hours or something we we were 14 days on and they literally had nothing and they just climbed up they they climbed the deville rappel probably up this little snow scoop where the actual traver- where the rappel is now right and that's another thing to know they changed the rappel to make it into a safer spot and
1: um yeah yeah, yeah so <laughs> but it, now it's still quite a ways after that rappel so after after that
0: yeah we had to get out Yeah,
1: so how did you yeah. manage that like emotionally and mentally? Like did, yeah. did you get you didn't get hellied yeah. out? Eh? you guys still no, kept going No, we
0: ski toured out. Yeah, we didn't have communications or anything. Yeah. I don't know if we would have. I'm not sure. We were rattled. To say I was rattled is is a, a gross understatement. I was traumatized by that. Mm-hmm. I literally leaving thought every single slope out there was going to hit me with an avalanche. Mm -hmm. I was looking at everything, even though it was cold and everything was locked up the next day in my brain. I was about to get hit by an avalanche. I could not wait to get out of there. Mm
1: -hmm. I just
0: was. uh, And I remember I'm coming on down the illa silhouette and a a giant um, military airplane flew over with loud sounds. And I was just like trembling from the sound of that airplane. And it took me years to get over the sound of like airplanes flying over while I was out in the mountains. Right. Yeah. We got out though, but nothing felt real. Like yeah. it, nothing, nothing felt real. I felt like I was a ghost. Like a, uh, Like it was, it was, yeah. I, I, I when I tell this story, I kind of go back a little bit into that. Like I can feel my, my body like clenching right now thinking mm-hmm. about, you know, yeah, about the feeling of that. And then I think the other thing that comes out and, uh, you know, any other incidents that I've had is like this shame. I started to feel shame too. I started to feel ashamed of myself. I had made this mistake. How did I do it? What did everybody think about me? How? And, you know, you get this hindsight 2020 thing that just like everything comes into focus. I made this mistake. I made that mistake. Why didn't I do this? And then you know obviously a little bit of trust slips out of yourself um when that when something like that happens
1: yeah wow uh, that's and then so what year was that again that was that was tw- 2005
0: 2005 so 2006 i started poking myself back out again i was like i gotta get back on the horse you know i i had a tough summer that year it was uh i just was not i was not myself and then the next year i remember my first ski trip going over new year's was the first time i went skiing and i remember telling my friend we're gonna go out but I, i won't go in avalanche train i'm not going anywhere near avalanche train i was to still too rattled but i i started skiing and once i started skiing i was like okay i can i'm starting to feel a little bit better and then it really wasn't that long before i was out ski touring again and doing it again yeah. so I was able to get back out there that year I think I did a practicum that winter again up at Ice and starting to get my feet back under me and then the next year I got my first job at Retallic in 2007 so I was back back in the saddle by 2007 but it wasn't yeah it was it wasn't it was a while before I felt okay yeah really. no doubt yeah, yeah that
1: and judging by the timeline like that type of traverse seemed pretty early in your your kind of
0: sure yeah i didn't journey. have a lot of yeah totally i had um i had some skills for sure i'd been practicing, i felt like i had things under me i didn't have my ca level two and yeah it was relatively new for sure and you know when i've told this story i did that traverse because it was on the acmg recommended ski traverses right mm-hmm. and I I told that story to a few of the examiners when I was on my exams and they were just like, that's terrifying they're just like the Shocked thought that you're like, still there yeah and just the i i think to a little bit of like just the 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 mentorship process that we get as as guides especially back then there wasn't just a coherent plan it wasn't like hey you do this course you do this course it's different than other trades where you get it you go to school you get your job you work in it you slowly work your way up back then it was like hey you do your ca level one there really wasn't much else to do. And then you just go and you ski tour and you build up a resume to apply. And I think that back then, yeah, there, there just wasn't as much for people to dig into from, for myself, there was, then it was like, Mm -hmm. Hey, I go ski touring and just get good at it. Yeah. You know, you could hire guides and stuff to, to tune you up back then. And perhaps I could have been doing that, but it was really like, just go out there and get after it. Mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. build up that resume and it's yeah you know to an impressionable uh, 21 to 25 year olds that's you can end up getting into a lot of trouble on these big trips the thing about traverses is it forces you into things it forces you into decisions and and that's what really builds your skill sets while you're doing them because it's not like oh i can just sit at camp today it's like hey we got to make it through that pass yeah, you know, we've got to get there. Yeah. It's just like, you know, there's a lot of decision making, and yeah. I, I learned a lot on my traverses, and and I went on to do, keep doing traverses after that. Right, I kept yeah. doing them. I did lots of traverses after that. I love them. Doing traverses was was amazing. So the best times of my life were on traverses. Mm-hmm. Some of the worst times. <laughs> and after a while, some of the worst times turn into, yeah, that was like the best time. Yeah. right. <laughs> like, <that's,
1: laughs> when you forget about those the type stories, three fun that was there.
0: <laughs> exactly. You just forget and the story starts becoming sort of fun. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, like what a, you know, you think about like what your question is like, what did I take? Take from that you know like what was the overall was it a reality check you know did it change the way I approach things and yeah like it it taught me that I need to speak my mind and I need to bring up concerns that maybe other people are sharing and that's one thing I tell my AST students is like if you have a nagging doubt or feeling you owe it to the other people around you to bring that up there's probably somebody in the group who's feeling the same thing Mm -hmm. and that was going on in our group we just weren't saying it to one another yeah i didn't have that confidence to be like hey guys i think we should park it this is too late we're not gonna this is too late like yeah we're low on fuel but you know there's a big slope on the other side yeah you know it's it's 1 p.m i didn't say anything and that was my that was my big lesson from that and and we all know that and we say it, but it's incredibly hard to do.
1: When you're out there, right? When
0: you're, when out, you're there. out there. It's hard to do. The group think and the group mentality is such a, a big part of this sport of um, just following along, even when you're a guide, even when you have more experienced guides around you, you tend to be like, okay, I'm not going to question things. I don't want to mm-hmm. stick out here. People don't want to stick out, but usually there's somebody else and it's worth having the conversation. Totally. That's totally. all. Totally. Yeah.
1: No, that's an amazing story, and and it it's so good to be able to to get to get that from you. Um, it,
0: yeah. Thank you. Thanks for letting me tell it. It's amazing. Part of this podcast is the fact that people come on here and tell tell their stories. That's you know, we need to do more sharing. Mm-hmm. We need to be more open with one another. It's been a big shift in the industry in the last bunch of years too, of people being more open. People don't shouldn't I shouldn't be sitting here telling this story thinking, oh, I, I should be ashamed that this happened to me.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And that's you know that's the way that's what brought me to to Caleb in the first place to to want to to help out with yeah. this podcast because it's the same thing. Yeah. Even as a recreationist, you know, a lot of times you know, you get, yeah, you get that uh, that feeling of shame for getting yeah. involved in an incident, for making a mistake, and and um, yeah. But at the end of the day, you could help a lot of people by sharing that mistake. Um, and, exactly, and I think exactly. there's there's a lot of value in that. So now, yeah. let's uh, mm-hmm. we'll dive into a few more questions mm-hmm. here, and then sure. yeah. and then uh, we'll we'll. Uh, we'll kind of mm-hmm. wrap up the evening but uh so what's one tool that you don't go into the back country without and that doesn't include any of your so it's kind of one of those nice knickknack mm-hmm. things that you just have with you you know marty said yeah. candy yeah you know yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> my uh thermos of my mother-in-law's soup oh yeah so you gotta have grandma soup out there, and now that Gale's a grandma, she makes grandma soup, and nice. um, I I bring a thermos of her homemade soup pretty much every day. I'm out in the mountains. Awesome. Yeah, and I'm super lucky that she she makes me soup. Oh man, that powers me through those moments. You know, is you're teaching, you're working. There's so little time to eat sometimes. Oh. Like you're just like like literally like you don't sit down and have lunch often you're like okay i'm powering through so a full giant like one liter like get a good like thermos of soup and fill it with any grandma's soup doesn't matter if it's yours find a grandma soup (laughs) yeah figure it out yeah get that soup it'll power you through Um, i also make homemade bone broth too which is uh, that's it that's the other key there is uh adding my own homemade bone broth in and bringing a a little thermos of bone broth.
1: Nice. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Mm -hmm. No, that's awesome. That's a good one. I like that one. I like that one. Well, Judson, that was a great conversation. Thank you so much for sharing those stories, man. I think our listeners are really going to enjoy this one.
0: Thanks for having me on
1: and, uh, allowing me the space to, uh, tell my stories absolutely absolutely and we'll have to get together and slay some pow at some point
0: come down to nelson because i'm not going i'm not going north <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm i'm working on it i'm working on it yeah you gotta get down here especially with that arctic outbreak there's no way i'm going north with that <laughs> thing coming <laughs> totally right on man thanks a lot yeah, yeah. Yeah, thanks, Wes. It's been a, it's been a blast. Cheers. Appreciate it and everything you guys are doing. Thank you very
1: much. Well, woo-ee. that was a great conversation with Judson. Yeah, I have to apologize for our little trip down memory lane. There, there's definitely no shortage of Ontario transplants in British Columbia. <laughs> yeah, small world. Anyways, thank you all for tuning in in this episode. You know, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. And, you know, if you got some money burning a hole in your pocket, we got a new donate feature on our website. So head on over to theavalanchehour.com. Don't forget to follow us on the socials, Facebook and Instagram, at The Avalanche Hour Podcast. Our artwork is provided by Mike T. You can check out his stuff at miket.com. The music in this episode was used with permission of the artist, and I did a bit of a mashup on this one. But both tracks are provided by Age Diamante. Another shout out to our supporters: Weizen Avalanche Control, Safety Through Innovation, Interwest Insurance, and Ten Barrel Brewing. If you like what we're doing here. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcasting platform leave us a comment tell a friend stay tuned on january 27th for kelly mcneil's episode with liz riggs metter <laughs> sorry if i butchered that name but i'm doing my best here anyways big shout out to caleb thanks for having me on again in the meantime while you guys are waiting for the next episode Get out there, get after it, be safe, and have fun. Cheers.